Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Good morning. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. We're glad you're here as we study some more of your questions with you. And if you're a first time viewer, that's what we do on this program is try to help folks know their Bible. Uh, we take viewers' questions. We don't know what everybody wants to know, so we just let them tell us. And uh, when they call in or log on to the website and give us a question, we put it in our stack of questions and get to it just as quickly as we can. So that's the way the program works. And if it's always something you wondered about or something that we talk about today that stirs a question in your mind, uh, just use that phone number or website and get in touch with us and you tell us what we talk about on Know Your Bible. Let me introduce my friend here, Toby Levering. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Steve. Well, welcome you're back. Welcome back and glad you're ready to go. Yep. Ready uh, to go. We always give our viewers one question first, so we're going to do that today and let them see if they know a little bit of trivia here. John the Baptist, the uh, Bible says there were two things specifically that he ate. Uh, he may have eaten more, but it does list two. So what are those two foods that John the Baptist specialized in? And we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program. See if you know a little bit of Bible. And I think you drew the first question today, so we'll let you start the program. Numero uno, I got it. <laughs> Viewer would like to know, why do churches not teach the Ten Commandments like the Bible tells us? Well, that's an interesting question. It has a lot to do with the basic understanding of how the Bible is divided up. Most people, of course, are familiar with the Ten Commandments and how that, you know, that's a pretty uh, easy number to remember. And the commandments themselves are basic principles of moral conduct, not only toward God and how He wants us to relate to Him, but also toward one another. <coughs> so it's. Uh, a process of uh, thinking through all of those Ten Commands it seems pretty, pretty simple, like we ought to follow those Ten Commands. The problem though is that the Ten Commandments are part of the Old Covenant. It was uh, part of the covenant between God and the nation of Israel. And uh, when He gave that law, it wasn't just Ten Commands. Uh, there were 601 other commands uh, that are in the old law. So uh, I suppose I'm fine with keeping the Ten Commandments so long as you want to keep all 611 commandments is really what the old law amounts to. Now, when you look at the old law you figure out pretty quickly it's impossible to do. Jesus in fact was the only person who ever kept all the commands. It was God's standard of holiness. We think well we're pretty good if we do this and this maybe keep five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of those commands, but uh, God says you got to keep all of them or you, you know there's, that's the only standard I have for perfection and holiness. Now, uh, most of those commands are later relayed under the new covenant in which Christ paid the price for our sins. He became our holiness. He, he, his life was perfectly lived under that law 
and they're un therefore we're under His blood, under His covenant, the new covenant, and nine of those ten specific commands are repeated in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, he takes them farther. He says, you know, you've heard it said, uh, do not commit murder, but I tell you, don't hate your brother. So Jesus took the law and he said, here's what, what the heart of the law meant. Uh, there are some folks, however, who really, really focus on one that is not repeated, and that is to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now, the Sabbath is the seventh day, and uh, under the New Covenant, that was replaced with the first day of the week, which is when Christians gather together to worship and celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And so that changed, and uh, the Sabbath, you can clearly read, is part of the old law. In fact, it was a little bit of a, a, little bit of a dispute in the early law, because the Jewish people said, hey, you got to keep the old law. And the Paul and the apostles said, no, we're under a different, different covenant. So that's the answer. We're into the new covenant today, and uh, the Sabbath, the command to keep the Sabbath, is simply not in there as a part of that covenant. <laughs> covenant. Let's read Romans chapter 7 verses 5 and 6 together. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. And what he's saying simply there is those commands make us realize that we can't keep all the commands. You know, if you ever make any rules, all it does is tend to uh, rouse up in you the desire to break those rules. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been, and catch this here, released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So the short answer is, we live under the nine commandments today under the new covenant of Christ. And the Sabbath is uh, part of the Old, old Testament commands. righty, thank you, Toby. Uh, viewers got a question about anger here. Does the Bible talk about how Jesus dealt with anger? Don't know if our viewers got an anger issue or just wants to know the general principles of it, but that would be a good way to deal with either one. Uh, how did Jesus do that? Uh, become kind of a cliche with all the bracelets and everything. What would, <laughs> what would Jesus do? But that's a good way to solve a lot of problems is to think about what would Jesus do. Uh, my answer is, does the Bible talk about how he dealt with anger? Uh, no, not specifically. He doesn't tell us the process he used or anything. It gives us a real generic mention that he did deal with anger. Uh, and that verse is Hebrews 4.15. Let me read it to you. It says, uh, we have a high priest uh, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. All right, so Jesus was tempted in every way with, we are. If we're tempted with anger and tempted to do bad things out of anger, Jesus was tempted the same way, but he didn't sin. Uh, now, I realize that's very generic, but that kind of sets the baseline for however he dealt with it. We know he didn't sin from it. Now, there are a couple of instances in the New Testament that really sound like Jesus was really hot, uh, really riled up, uh, angry in our terms. And those were both times at the temple. Uh, and background is uh, the temple was a holy place and you were supposed to go there to worship and all that. Uh, but the merchants had been allowed to move in. Uh, probably because the priest got a cut of their sales or something. Uh, but they had turned it in kind of, kind of a giant flea market. Uh, they sold animals for sacrifice. They sold, uh, they changed money for reasons. And so they just turned it into a big 
giant bazaar kind of thing. And Jesus got upset about that. Uh, one account is in John 2. Let's look at that together on the screen. John 2, 15, 17. So he made a whip out of cords. That sounds kind of like he was angry, doesn't it? <laughs> he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. All right, we read that account and we think, my goodness, he, he made a whip, he turned tables over, he was driving people out. Doesn't say that he hit anybody, uh, but he ran them out of there. So he was pretty angry. But remember our verse we looked at first, he didn't sin. So being angry itself is obviously not a sin. There are some things we ought to get angry about. Uh, when we see something on the news where some uh, adult abused a child or something, I get angry. I think we ought to get angry about those kind of things. Uh, Jesus got angry that his father's house had been turned into a, a marketplace. So the point is they're, getting angry is okay. Depends how you react to it and, and why you got angry. Uh, our term for it is that was righteous anger. Uh, it wasn't sinful anger. He had a reason to be angry and he, it was a righteous thing. Uh, the Bible's term for it there in that passage is zeal. Uh, he loved God and the, the, the temple so much and all that when somebody defiled it, he was zealous to protect it. So um, I know those, those are kind of generics. Now, we can get angry at somebody and say something wrong, do something wrong, lash out in some way. Uh, and that's what we've got to avoid. How Jesus did that, the Bible doesn't tell us. We know some principles. He always put others first. Uh, he came to do the will of God. So he always did what God wanted. He always thought of others first. And here's a key perhaps. He always took time to go away and be by himself. He went away in prayer certain times. Uh, one of our slogans these days is, before you do anything, if you get mad, count to ten. Uh, before you say or do anything, well, Jesus took time and went away. Maybe he was counting to ten there sometimes uh, to keep from lashing out at somebody. So we don't have any specific rules, but uh, there's some kinds of good anger and make the distinction there. Uh, count to ten is a pretty good rule, I guess. Yeah. Before you do something <laughs> you shouldn't do, you'll be sorry for Save you some heartache there. All righty, Toby. Yep, the next question. A viewer wants to know, why do some teach once saved, always saved? Well, uh, this program is really about identifying what the Bible teaches and not getting too much into what others teach and their doctrines and all of that. I think as we look clo more closely at the Bible, uh, we get a, a better understanding of what's true and what's not. So this doctrine of once saved, always saved, uh, my answer to that is it's a very comforting doctrine. If you, if you think about, well, I'm a Christian now and, and I'll always be a Christian. There's nothing I can do to lose my faith. There's nothing that can be done. I'm always going to be a Christian. I'm, I'm always going to remain in Christ. I'm, I'm going to heaven. And uh, there's nothing that's going to get in the way of that. To one extent, I kind of understand that. I think it, Christians ought to have confidence and be bold. But I don't agree that we can't uh, 
give up our faith, that we can't turn away from it. Some, some teach that you know, if a person gives up their faith, they were never really a Christian to begin with, uh, that the true who are elect are, uh, have pretty much almost no choice in the matter. And I just can't agree with that. There's too many scriptures that teach otherwise. Uh, the other extreme of this is uh, so, sort of the, if you one end you say once saved, always saved. The other extreme of that is once saved, barely saved. And these are people that are just, you know, they're never good enough and they're always trying and they're always uh, feeling like they're just messing up and, and God doesn't love them and God doesn't want them and they're always consumed with guilt over all the things that they've done and uh, they just can't let go of those things. They can't be forgiven because they won't uh, forgive themselves and they're just miserable and uh, uh, timid and uh, not the kind of people that I think we ought to be either. So between once saved, always saved and once saved, barely saved, I think we might ought to meet in the middle and uh, understand this truth um, that when you are in Christ, no one can take your salvation away from you. You should be confident in that, that Christ paid the price for your sin and it has been washed away. If you've been baptized, it's been uh, uh, paid for at the cross. It's been atoned for and uh, you should be confident in that. That said, you can give it up. You can turn away from it. And many are the accounts in the Bible of folks who have been apostles, disciples, believers, who at one time uh, were confident in their faith and then for one reason or another turned away from it because they loved the things of the world or they caught, got caught up with greed or any number of reasons they decided to give it up. And uh, our free choice is always going to be something that God is never going to stand in the way of. Uh, he wants us, of course, to be confident in our faith and to receive the gift of eternal life and to live uh, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but that ultimately we have to make that choice to, to do so. Uh, so a uh, verse I have for you, there's lots of verses that both camps kind of throw back and forth, but I'm just going to give you 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. Uh, there the Apostle Paul writes, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you, are, what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And I, I hope above all things people understand that God is on their side. God wants them to win by faith. He wants them to have a victorious life. And he wants them to understand that that victorious life comes only in Christ. And if you're in Christ, stay in Christ, stay firm in your faith and confident in that belief. All right, thank you, Toby. We take just a little bit to talk about a good way to study the Bible. We uh, believe that uh, the Bible's God's book, and that's why we take all this time and effort to study it with you each week, but we don't get very much of it covered. And that's why we're an advocate of home Bible study. We've got some free Bible study materials that we'll be happy to send you and let you get a lot more familiar with your Bible. That is, after all, the, the goal of the program, know your Bible. Uh, so we've got some great tools. You see the first set on the screen now. There are eight lessons in this uh, little correspondence course, which just means it comes to you in the mail. Uh, so you don't have to uh, buy anything or buy any books. Or if you've got a Bible, 
take this course and sit down and read through it, do the things it asks you to, read the parts of the Bible it requests, uh, fill out some of the questions at the end just to make sure you uh, got the gist of it and mail that back to us and we'll send you the next lesson, score that first one for you, uh, give you a little accountability there. You can go slow or as fast as you want. Uh, but we want to partner with you in this study and you can go through this first course and uh, graduate from it and go on to a lot more advanced courses that we have available. So study the Bible with uh, Know Your Bible Study Tools. Give us a call or log on to the website and we'll get it started for you. All right, viewer wants to know about the Lord's Prayer and the question is when did they, um, typo there, when did they add the last line to the Lord's Prayer? Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And I'm sure some of you have heard that, and some of you have probably recite the Lord's Prayer without that. Uh, they didn't add a line. In fact, even today, scholars can't quite agree on whether that line ought to be in there or not. Uh, it probably shouldn't. It's not in some of the oldest manuscripts. Uh, our best guess is that uh, since it's in some of the old manuscripts and not in the others, our best guess is that some scribe added that at some point because he thought that was the way you end a prayer. Uh, uh, that little line and little lines like that are called a doxology, a short hymn of praise, a short little prayer uh, to God. And you're familiar, we're all familiar with different ones. Some people end anything they read from Scripture or something and say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a little doxology, uh, one we sing sometimes and there are a number of different variations of it, but praise God from whom all blessings flow, uh, praise God all creatures here below, praise Him above ye heavenly host, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's a doxology, that's a little short hymn. And back in the early days, more than today perhaps, uh, people added a little doxology at the end of any time they read scripture or um, that. So maybe this scribe thought, well, this has got to end with thine is the kingdom, power, and glory, since that was a familiar doxology in that day. Now, we don't know. They didn't decide it's official. Uh, it's in some book. Uh, versions of the Bible. It's in, not in other translations. Uh, you can find it both ways. Uh, my best guess is Jesus didn't initially say that. Now, let's bear in mind one thing. Jesus wasn't teaching us a formula that we have to say these exact words to have a good prayer. What Jesus was doing was teaching people how to pray. Uh, they said, teach us to pray. And so he said, well, this is the way you pray. And he addressed the Father in heaven, and then he praised God, he thanked God for what he had, he petitioned God for certain things, and he asked for forgiveness. That's a good way to pray. Uh, put those four things in there and you've got a good prayer. Uh, you don't have to put all four of them in, but he was giving a model prayer. Uh, if your kindergarten, ask, kindergarten or asks you how to pray, uh, that'd be a good thing to tell them. Well, praise God a little bit and then thank God for the things you have. Uh, ask Him for anything you want uh, and ask Him to forgive you if you've done something wrong. So I think that's what Jesus was doing. So I wouldn't get too hung up on the exact words and trust. Jesus didn't have a, uh, a prayer that we had to recite verbatim. He was giving us a model or a sample prayer. 
All right, you got, got one. Got kind of a tricky one about a uh, question wants to know about the dead in Christ. When the dead in Christ arise, will their bodies stay in the ground? Uh, my answer to that is I don't think so. <laughs> Um, of course, it is a bit of a mystery, the difference between the physical body. You and I live in a physical, fleshly body that was uh, began with a, a strand of DNA from our mother and a strand of DNA from our father woven together. And uh, that's when our physical body began. The cells began to, to uh, divide and divide and divide over and over again. And uh, then as we leave this world, the body we know is separate from the soul. Now, the next part of it is this idea of a resurrection body. The dead in Christ will be raised first. <coughs> what happens to the body they leave behind? And like I said, it's a mystery. Some of it we gather from Scripture. Some of it we think a little bit about when Jesus was resurrected. Of course, His body didn't remain in the tomb. Uh, when it came out and he appeared to many people, there were, there were holes in his hands, uh, there was marks in his side, as he told Thomas. Uh, John, I can't think, accounts that he ate breakfast, and so he had some ability there, and yet the body was different. It was um, different than the physical body that it was before he was crucified. That's my best answer, is it's going to be different. But I think they're um, the same as far as, uh, I, I don't think there's the one body is going to be left behind in the ground, and then we get a new body. If I'm wrong on that, I'm okay with that, because I don't really think anybody knows and won't until uh, Jesus returns. <clears throat> uh, Paul even said it was a mystery, uh, but I think understanding Christ's resurrection body and the account of that and uh, also looking at some verses. Let's, speaking of verses, let's look at those together. On the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I selected some verses there out of the chapter. I would, if you're interested in this, I'd go ahead and read the whole chapter, but we just don't have time. Uh, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Uh, this body wears out over time. Not going to be the same with our resurrection body. It's going to be perfect. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. We have all sorts of physical limitations. Our, our resurrection body is going to be raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So that's uh, the first part of that, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised <coughs> imperishable and we shall be changed. So uh, it's going to be different, but all that said, still a bit of a mystery. <laughs> All right. Uh, viewer wants to know, was Satan the most beautiful angel? Well, you may have heard that theory or that uh, concept taught before that Satan, before he rebelled against God, was one the most beautiful angel, and that was where his problem came. He got prideful about himself. Uh, it's found in Exodus, or Ezekiel 28.12. Uh, let's look at that verse together. It says, You were the model of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Well, people look at that and say, well, he's talking about Satan there, and that's where the concept comes from. 
Uh, we've answered about this before. That chapter is actually a prophecy against the king of Tyre. If you read verse 1, you read the little statement over your chapter, it says a prophecy against the king of Tyre. And then verse 2 says that, verse 11 says it again, say this to the king of Tyre. Now, a lot of it sounds like he's also talking about Satan because he talks about him being in the garden and some other stuff. I think myself he's probably comparing the king of Tyre somehow to Satan and there's a little bit of both in there. It's hard for us to dissect exactly when he's talking about Satan or the king of Tyre and whether he's comparing him to him. Uh, so my answer to the question is maybe he was the most beautiful angel. Uh, he could just be telling the king of Tyre that you were elevated and had wisdom and everybody looked up to you and all that. Or he may be talking about Satan himself. So uh, I wouldn't be too dogmatic about it either way. Uh, Satan messed up whatever his problem was. So perhaps he was the most beautiful angel. All right, let me take this moment and invite you to visit the Church of Christ. We're uh, sponsored by Churches of Christ near you. And one of our partners over in Springfield, Missouri is the Watermill Church of Christ. Great, great bunch of folks there and uh, uh, solid partners and help us stay on the air and we appreciate that. I know you'd enjoy uh, dropping in and visiting them sometime. You'd find a group of people that think and study about the Bible a lot like we do, uh, believe in this program, and help keep us on the air. So drop in if you're searching for a church home. It'd be a great place to visit. Uh, visit any Church of Christ near you. Uh, tell them you watch, heard about them or uh, watch Know Your Bible. You appreciate them providing the program. All right, Toby, let's squeeze in a couple more sure. here. Sure. A viewer asked the question, do we have guardian angels? And the answer to that is perhaps. Um, the Bible speaks a lot about angels, but only enough to kind of tease us. It doesn't tell us exactly how it all works. We know the original word means basically a servant. An angel comes from that word angelos, and it just means one who serves. Did, did angels exist? Yes. Do they exist now? Sure. Uh, did some of them in the Bible accounts protect? Yes, absolutely. The question is, do we have individual specific guardian angels? And uh, it's possible. There are some verses that kind of you could interpret that way, but it never says that out and out. So the uh, um, Bible never says specifically. I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. Uh, the point of the angel is not to uh, focus on the angel, but on the one who created the angel. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 together on the screen. Nope, it's not there. Uh, it says, Do you not know that all angels are uh, sent to minister as ministering spirits? So I uh, hope that helps you a little bit. Hebrews 1, 14 is the reference you want to look up there. Okay, very good. Uh, there's a verse about all, all children all having yep. a angel that watches them. Right. I think that's where the guardian angel concept comes from, but doesn't say anything else about it. So yep. it just... <laughs> uh, if we do, that's fine with me. And I, there's been a few times in my life, but that's, that's all I can explain it with is yep. how I got through it. He was my out after my angel took care of me, but, <laughs> but I can't prove it. I, I take it on faith. All right, we're about out of time today, so let's make sure we get our trivia question answered. Uh, John the Baptizer came out of the wilderness and eating two foods, and what were they? And the answer is locusts and wild honey. 
Uh, I kind of dig the honey part of it, but the locusts, I'm not too, too keen on that, but I don't live in the wilderness like he did. And that's what he ate, the Bible says. Uh, if you've got other questions, continue to call in and get them to us, and we're going to try to answer some more of them next week. We're glad you've been with us this week as we covered some of them. We hope to see you next week. Until then, you have a blessed week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.